Well, good morning to you and good morning to those who are listening on WhatsApp. We continue with our sermon series today on spiritual disciplines, habits for wholeness. And today and next week, we are going to have a look at the spiritual discipline of stewardship. Now, this is going to be a two-part sermon. Today, we're going to have a look at some general principles of stewardship. And next week, God willing, we will have a look more specifically at the spiritual discipline of giving. I can see who is here. And if you are not here next week, I shall know. <laughs> Sometimes talking about stewardship and giving can be quite painful, but one writer had this to say in this regard. When you go to the doctor for your annual checkup, he or she will often begin to poke, prod and press various places, all the while asking, does this hurt? How about this? If you cry out in pain, one of two things has happened. Either the doctor has pushed too hard without the right sensitivity, or, more likely, there's something wrong, and the doctor will say, we'd better do more tests. It's not supposed to hurt there. The same is true of stewardship. The pastor preaches on the subject, and some of the memberships cry out in pain. We shouldn't talk about money in church. Well, that's no one's business but my own. When people squirm like that, one of two things has happened. Either the pastor pushed too hard, or maybe there is something wrong. In which case I would have to say, my friend, we're in need of the great physician, because it's not supposed to hurt there. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to be reading verses 14 through 13. Matthew chapters 24 and 25 form a block of material in which Jesus answers a question that the disciples ask at the beginning of that section. Uh, Jesus tells the disciples that one day the temple will be destroyed and they ask him, tell us, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus' answer to those questions takes up two whole chapters. In these chapters, Jesus describes some of the signs that will show that his return is imminent. And he also tells a number of parables that describe what his return will be like. It's very important to understand that context. Because now when Jesus speaks about a man who goes away on a long journey and takes a long time to return home... He is speaking about his own going away at his ascension and his own return one day on the day of judgment. Let's have a look. Matthew chapter 25 from verse 14. Jesus says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who'd received the five talents went out at once and put his money to work, and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who'd received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, 
and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who'd received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is God's word. I want us to look at five principles of stewardship that we see in this passage, and they will form the basis for my next sermon on giving. The first principle of stewardship is that God owns everything. Jesus speaks here about a master who entrusts a certain amount of his wealth to three servants. The money does not belong to them. It belongs to the master. They are simply his stewards. And in the same way, we remind ourselves that the things that we have and everything around us is not our own. It comes from the hand of God. God owns everything. I wonder how often we remind ourselves of that, that everything, absolutely everything, comes from God. When our children were younger, we would occasionally hear those wonderful words shouted out through our house, that's mine. Some of you have been there already. Some of you are going through it again with your grandchildren, and some of you are still going to get there. She can't come in here. This is my room. She can't have that. It's mine. She can't touch that. It's mine. I came across some property laws according to toddlers recently. This is how two-year-olds see things. If I like it, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it's yours and I can steal it, it's mine. If I say it's mine, it's mine. 
If it looks like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you're having fun with it, it's mine. If you put it down, it's mine. If it's broken, it's yours. It really broke my heart as a parent when I heard that word mine shouted through our house. Because actually, all of the stuff is mine. <laughs> I bought it for my daughters. I gave it to them. I don't charge them rent on their room. And to me, it would have been great if they'd shared. But they were very much into their rights as property owners at one stage. And I think that actually, we never grow out of that. We use the word mine far too often. My house. It really belongs to the bank. My car. It'll probably be somebody else's car in a few years' time. My body. Is this body something I made for myself? Or was it perhaps given to me? The Bible gives us a very clear corrective to this it's mine theology in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Every now and again you'll read a rags-to-riches story about a young man or a young woman who clawed their way up through poverty and through obstacles to become rich and famous. You think of someone like Bill Gates, for example, who was the school geek but is now one of the richest men in the world. You think about someone like Oprah Winfrey who overcame poverty and abuse. And you'll often hear things like, he's a self-made man or she made it all by herself. The fact of the matter is that there isn't a single self-made man or self-made woman on earth. I always remember reading a section of one of Philip Yancey's books, I think it was Reaching for the Invisible God, in which he wrote this. So far, I've avoided writing about a most difficult period of my life, a time of serious physical complications when I could not talk or walk. I lay in bed all day, barely able to move my arms and legs. My eyes did not focus. I could not feed myself and was incontinent. I had little comprehension of what was going on around me. Resigned to my state, I could not imagine any improvement. And I thought to myself, my goodness... I don't remember Philip Yancey going through anything like that. He, he hasn't experienced, he hasn't mentioned that before. And then I read on. Fortunately, I outgrew that condition of being a baby and grew up into adulthood. There is no such thing as a self-made man or woman without human help. And there is certainly not a self-made man or woman on earth without the creating, sustaining preserving hand of Almighty God. All that we are and everything that we have comes from God. Our possessions, our family, our homes, our health, our life. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not. 
I'll address the subject of giving more specifically in my next sermon. But when it comes to giving, many people ask the question. In fact, sometimes it's the very first question. How much of my money should I give to God? 10%? 20%? Should I tithe on my gross salary or on what I get out? How much of my stuff should I give to God? That's the wrong question. The question should rather be, how much of God's stuff should I be keeping for myself? Everything that we have comes from God. Jesus' half-brother, uh, the Apostle James, puts it this way in James chapter 1. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So, principle number one, God owns everything. The second principle of stewardship that we see in this passage is that God has entrusted some of his possessions to us. As we've seen, the master gives out various amounts of his property for these servants to take care of. It's not their own property. They are simply stewards. A steward is a manager of goods that belong to somebody else. All of us experience some form of stewardship in our day-to-day -day lives. Uh, if you have a bank account, the bank is a steward of your money. It's not their money. It's yours. And you would be very upset if the bank invested your money in some offshore investment and then lost it all. Some of us own things that are used by others or that we have lent to others. Uh, perhaps you're a business owner and you have employees who use vehicles that belong to you. Or perhaps you own property or a granny flat and you have tenants that stay there. Most of us are familiar with this idea of stewardship, that we are stewards of other people's property or that others are stewards of our property. And each one of us today are stewards of what God has given to us. Let me make two further points under this main heading of God entrusting things to us. Firstly, we see that God has given to each one of us abundantly. Jesus says that the master gave each of his servants a certain number of talents uh, some of our English Bibles try to clarify the fact that this refers to actual money, and they try to give a sense of how much this might be. So, for example, the revised New International Version speaks about bags of gold, uh, five bags of gold, two bags of gold, and one bag of gold, which isn't a bad solution, uh, depending on the gold price. But in not using this word talent those versions can eclipse the fact that the master gave each of these servants the opportunity of a lifetime. Time for a quick maths lesson. In Jesus' day, a talent was the highest monetary denomination of that time, and it was equal to 6,000 denarii. A denarius was equivalent to a day's wages. Most people worked around 300 days a year, so a year's salary was 300 denarii. One talent then, 6,000 denarii, was equal to 20 years' wages. 
So each one of these men is given a small fortune. The third servant was given one talent, 20 years' worth of wages. The second servant was given two talents, 40 years' wages. And the first servant was given five talents, five times 20 years of wages, a hundred years' worth of wages. And God gives to each one of us abundantly and generously. Each of us has been given so much. Now, it's quite possible that God has not given you a hundred years' worth of your salary. Perhaps you wish that he had. But it's very easy for us to look at what we don't have and forget what we do have. God has abundantly given each of us all things. We sometimes sing that chorus, 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. And we won't list 10,000 reasons now, but let's consider a few. God has given you a body, a mind. Most of us are blessed to have bodies and minds that work effectively and efficiently. And if not, God has given us the grace to work with those minds and bodies that don't work effectively and efficiently. He's given us the ability to see and to hear and to speak. Most of us have the gift of literacy. We have family, a home, perhaps a car, maybe a job. We have certain gifts and abilities. If you're a believer today, you've also been given spiritual gifts by God. And most of us listening today have the greatest gift of all, the gift of salvation and an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Secondly, in terms of God entrusting things to us, we see that God gives to each of us uniquely. Verse 15, to one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. We aren't all the same, and we aren't all given the same. Uh, to borrow some words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. When I get to heaven, God isn't going to ask me, why weren't you more like Billy Graham? Why weren't you more like the Apostle Peter? He's going to ask me, why weren't you more like Andrew Parker? Each of us has been uniquely created and gifted by God. Your particular heart and abilities and personality and experiences and spiritual gifts. So, principle number one, God owns everything. Principle two, God has entrusted some of his property to us abundantly and uniquely. And the third principle that we see in this passage is that there is freedom in stewardship. Notice that the master didn't tell his servants what they had to do with the money. 
At the end, he suggests to the third servant that at least he could have put the money in the bank to gain interest. But aside from that, there are no instructions as to, you must do this with my money. We're not even told what the two faithful servants did do with the money. Uh, Maybe they traded on second-hand camels or Dead Sea Tupperware. (laughs) Who knows? But they had freedom in what they did with what was entrusted to them. And our God is a gracious and generous God. And he not only gives us things to look after, but he instructs us to enjoy them. And he also allows us freedom to honor him through what we have in various ways. If you are a teacher, you can use that gift to glorify God in various locations. If you have some medical knowledge, you can use that gift to glorify God in various places. So, God owns everything. God entrusts some of his property to us. And there is freedom in stewardship. The fourth principle of stewardship that we see in this passage is that God holds us accountable for all that he has given to us. We read in verse 19, After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. I went to the Leicester Road Primary School in Johannesburg when I was young, and I'll never forget the school prayer that we used to pray. It went like this. We will pass through this world but once. Any good, therefore, that we can do, or any kindness that we can show, let us do it now. Let us not defer nor neglect it, for we shall not pass this way again. Quite a heavy prayer, both grammatically and theologically. But the opportunities that we have right now, we will never have again. The family that we have right now, we will never have again. Those of you who are looking after small children, they will never be this age again. The money that we have, we will never have again. The opportunities that we have to serve, we will never have again. The opportunities that we have to give and to make a difference, we will never have again. There is a time limit on all that God has given us. And one day we will have to stand before him and give an account. And in the end, God will either look at us and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Or he will say, You wicked, lazy servant. Now, let me just be clear. When it comes to our being acceptable to God, our being righteous before him, in a right relationship with him, there is nothing that you and I could ever do. God has done that through the Lord Jesus, as we will see in a moment. The book of Revelation pictures the day of judgment as a day on which books will be opened. The most important book is the Lamb's Book of Life, in which are written all the names of those who know and love Jesus as Saviour and Lord. But there will be other books, too. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 
it is possible that one day we will stand in front of God, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, and yet be ashamed by how much he has done for us and how little we have done for him. So, God owns everything. God entrusts some of his property to us abundantly and uniquely. There is freedom in stewardship, and God holds us accountable. But the fifth and final principle of stewardship that we see in this passage is that stewardship rests on the issue of relationship. Why did the third servant waste his master's money? Well, look at what he says in verse 24. Master, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. He had a totally wrong view of his master. In fact, to him, he wasn't a master, but a petty tyrant demanding his pound of flesh. He didn't have the proper relationship. And I wanted to suggest this morning that none of what we have spoken about so far will make any sense at all outside a proper relationship with Jesus. It's so interesting to see the master's response to his servant in verse 26. You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. The master repeats the servant's own assessment of who he is back to the servant. But you notice what he leaves out. I knew that you're a hard man. The master refuses to repeat that, to pin that title on himself, because it just isn't true. Many people think of God as a hard master, an angry God up in heaven, waiting for us to step out of line so that he can get us. They think of his commands as restricting us and spoiling our fun. Remember a few years ago, the famous atheist Richard Dawkins sponsored a number of adverts on London buses which read, There probably is no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. In other words, God is a spoil sport out to make sure that nobody anywhere is having fun ever. Who would want to serve a God like that? But when you understand the goodness and the kindness, and the grace, and the sheer beauty of God, it changes everything. Perhaps, like me, you were disturbed by the horrific picture in that verse of the servant being thrown outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But think about it for a moment. Jesus is the only person whoever was completely faithful with all that his father had given him. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Jesus was completely faithful. And yet one Friday afternoon, Jesus was taken outside the city of Jerusalem and he was plunged into God-forsaken darkness. All the weight of my unfaithfulness and your unfaithfulness, my selfishness 
and your selfishness was placed upon him, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his back on his son, and Jesus experienced hell on the cross. And he did it for you, and he did it for me, so that one day we might stand before him and hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. Out of his riches, he gives us the equivalent of a hundred years' salary in this life. And at the end, he says, you've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. In other words, the best is yet to come. Jesus becomes the third slave for us, so that in him we become the first slave. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And when we see God in this way, then we can respond. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Then, and only then, will we be good stewards of all that God has given us. And can I ask you today, do you know God in that way? We spoke a moment ago about God asking us what we have done with all that he has given to us. And one of the things that God will want to know on that final day is this. What did you do with my son Jesus? It's only when we know him personally that we can experience the joy of saying to him, Lord, all that I am and everything that I have is yours. We haven't really looked at anything practical this morning. We'll get to some of that in our next sermon. But the good thing about principles is that we can build our individual practices, our individual lives on these principles. God owns everything. God entrusts some of his property to us abundantly and uniquely. There is freedom in stewardship. God holds us accountable and stewardship rests on this issue of our relationship with God. May we pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you most of all today that on the cross you did take our selfishness, our unfaithfulness, our ingratitude, our downright hostility to you. You took that upon yourself. And in place of that, you offer us your faithful life, your generosity, your riches, your grace, your mercy, so that we can stand in front of you, not in our own righteousness, but clothed in your righteousness. And even hear you say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray, please, that that image, that understanding of who you are, would so shape 
and change our lives in the week that lies ahead, that we might be generous towards you and towards everyone else in the same way that you have been generous towards us. For we ask it in your name. Amen.